from the team that brought you the man of a thousand voices. I'm Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. One pound, one shilling. Croc warfare in the moat. <laughs> as colourful as any character in James Joyce's Dubliners. This is Behind the Scenes, coming to a radio near you now. Rather apt, given the fact that you are in the hot seat this week, Rob, to oh, deliver behind the scenes and this should come with a warning I feel well no it's n- not, not really? too much not too, well Chris I'll let you be the judge of that I'll let our listeners be the judge they might want to switch over but <laughs> no, this film turns 25 this week and I just want to apologise to Mike's mom and Josh's mom oh my lord it premiered in January 1999 at the Sundance Film Festival. We're talking, of course, about the Blair Witch Project. Yes, we are. That ending, spoiler alert, is mental. I remember watching that. That came out in 1999, so I would have been 13. Mm, I saw it at uni. I was at uni when it came out. 13 I was. And I watched it with the boys Friday night. You know, right, this film's come out and the buzz around it is based on a real life story. Mm, Well, we'll get into that. Let's get round and watch it. And that ending stayed with me and probably has stayed with me to this yeah. day. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, not. not uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, of course. I've seen the film, yeah. <laughs> uh, there are a few films, maybe even no films, I would say, that punch more above their weight Agreed. than The Blair Witch Project. It marked a watershed in the horror genre and independent filmmaking as a whole. The Blair Witch Project has taken in more than $113 million. It's a movie everyone seems to be talking about these days. It's The Blair Witch Project. The Blair Witch Project. The Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch Project. Project. That was the opening weekend. It would actually go on to make $250 million, having been shot on a budget of 35000 for every dollar spent on the filming of it, the Blair Witch Project made $7,142. That is incredible. It's amazing, isn't it? It was written, edited and directed by Dan Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez, who had decided that the horror genre in the 90s had gone very stale and they needed a drastic new approach to revitalise it. There really wasn't anything that was scaring us. I mean, it's like, okay, there were horror movies, quote-unquote, and they were kind of fun to kind of go check out and stuff like that. It was scaring us that they were being made. Yeah, and the thing about Blair Witch, if you haven't seen it, it's not jump scares. It seeps into Mm. your soul. You yeah. know, it goes places. It's unsettling. It's psycho- yes. it, it gets under your skin. Yeah, it's psychological. It, it really is. And, and given um, the fact it's marketed as based on a true story of a few students who wandered into the woods one day, I mean, that in itself. Well, yeah. Yeah, and people bought it. I mean, the pair wrote, this is Myrick and then Sanchez, a 35-page screenplay with zero dialogue because they knew they wanted the project to be improvised. We just took what we had to work with, which is a very minimal budget, minimal resources, and used those as our strengths. Yeah, that was the voice there of Dan Myrick. And, I mean, it was so incredibly original. As I said, $35,000 to shoot it, and most of that was on talent. So I think that was $25,000 they paid the talent. We'll get into that as well, because that became controversial in the aftermath of the film. But the post-production costs actually pushed that budget up to about half a million dollars but Ah. why was it such a sensation one of the key reasons was that people bought into it and they they because it it really blurred the lines between fact and fiction yeah and sanchez says their their key kind of like mainstay their key prerogative was that everything about the film had to look completely real so this meant that Myrick and Sanchez had to employ innovative directing techniques no more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago many of whom remain, 
either on this hill or in the town below. So they used grainy, low-grade footage, documentary style, had never been seen before in mainstream Hollywood filmmaking. No one would ever have dared to use the kind of amateurish footage that they used in a mainstream production. it, it looked as if someone had stumbled upon a camcorder yeah. Stuck it on and you were watching a whole movie. That's essentially. it. Yeah, basically, yeah. So the approach extended to the casting as well. So imagine if you'd seen this, Chris, if you were a student, right. if you were like trying to get into acting, imagine if you'd seen this, how intrigued you'd be, okay? This was the ad that appeared in the paper. Improvisational feature film. Open call for the Black Hills project. Non-union with pay, travel and meals. Shooting for three months in Maryland. Seeking men and women aged 18 to 25 with a natural look. That's me. Extremely challenging roles to be shot under very difficult conditions. I've lost me there. (laughs) (laughs) Had you up until... Yeah. Yeah, Pay, travel and meals. Tick. Extremely challenging role. Ooh. To be shot under very difficult conditions. Ooh. Nah. nah. I'm out. Yeah, you were looking for extremely easy role to be shot under cushy conditions, (laughs) weren't you? Absolutely. You couldn't go and hire Ed Norton for this role. To maintain the ruse that this was real footage, all of the actors had to be completely unknown. In fact, the more obscure they were, the better. Here's Heather Donahue explaining how she got wind of it. One day, long, long ago, Mad <laughs> caught my eye that said improvised feature film. At that point, it was called The Black Hills Project. The main thing was that it was an improvised feature film. That stopped me dead in my tracks. Because, wow, that's a dream. That's okay. creative freedom. So once the actors have been cast, the unconventional approach carried over to filming, and, and it's here where things get really wacky. The directors didn't interact with them at all on location at the Seneca Creek State Park where the film was shot. Instead, they left 35mm film cans that the actors would find via GPS. With instructions? Yeah. So these included notes as to their next location, as well as individual instructions for each actor... And guidance on how they should improvise that. that day. So here's one of the actors, Josh Leonard, describing the process here. They would watch the dailies at night and give us instructions, character motivations on, on what they saw and where they wanted to take it for the next day. And we wouldn't know what each other's character motivation was. So a lot of the time, you know, we, we would be conflicting in, in what, our, you know, what our goal for the scene would be. We're in the middle of the goddamn woods. We can walk anyway. We're going this way because that's the way we've been going for a day. We're going this way and that's it. Yeah, to further heighten the authenticity of the performances, the directors decided to leave the actors with less and less food as the eight-day shoot went on. Also, they disrupted their sleep throughout the night by making loud noises in the woods outside their tent. Okay, so there is an element of truth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here's Eduardo Sanchez on the methods they employed. Now, the whole movie was basically, you know, safely torturing these actors. And the fact that, you know, they all were like cool and none of them like walked out and none of them were stopped or they were eager to do it. And, you know, it's a testament to who they are as actors. So the innovation was, was really bold when it came to the scares. Basically, Sanchez and Myrick, their idea was let's shoot an entire horror movie and we'll never show the monster. Yeah. That was the, the whole yeah. premise. It, it had never been done before. So according to Myrick, the horror comes from what you don't see. You just let the audience have their imagination run, run wild on them. So like the directing style, the approach to cinematography in the film was groundbreaking for a Hollywood feature. Most of the film was shot by the actors themselves. That's right. On camcorders. The film was shot on two different cameras. 
both of which are actually referenced repeatedly during the film. Josh Leonard, who we heard from earlier, he was cast partly because he knew how to operate a camera. <laughs> that was one of his sort of, you know, special skills. And here, Sanchez explains how they trained them up. Trained them before the shooting began, a couple of days on loading the camera, and Mike, the sound guy, was trained on the DAT recorder. You know, we just kind of gave him a three-day film school. So the two guys, Myrick and Sanchez, they, they ended up getting 20 hours of raw footage to sift through. And the editing process was, was like a documentary. It wasn't like a film because there was, it wasn't like there was alternative takes. No. They're not going to choose between take one and take four. There was just 20 hours of coverage and they had to get 20 hours of footage down to 81 minutes of runtime. And they were actually originally going to format the film like a conventional documentary, kind of interspersing all of the footage in the woods with the talking heads with the friends and relatives. Oh, we're doing a documentary yeah. about the Blair Witch. Oh. Oh, have you heard of the Blair Witch? Oh, yeah. That, that's an old, old, old story. But luckily, I think brilliantly from them, they actually moved away from this idea. They, th they said, right, let's just include the interviews at the beginning of the film and then we're just going to sit with the central characters as they get lost in the woods and things get more and more desperate yeah. and it all starts to unravel. So the drawback to that was that there would be a lot of shaky camera work. But they, they just thought, look, we're willing to pay the price for the realism. Yeah, but because there is a lot of shaky camera of work. Of course there is. And I remember when the first, and I do remember this vividly, when the first reviews of the movie came out, there were talk, and I don't know if this was hyperbole or, or what, but there were talk of some cinema goers who were actually getting, nauseous, yeah. that were getting sick. Yes, I think so. the actual cinema. Well, I think so, because it was. It was very off-putting, some of it. And, and it was, you know, the, there was no steady cam there. It was people running around holding a, a camcorder, basically, trying to film. Um, but it was picked up. It was picked up by Artisan Entertainment Studio. Um, they wanted to change the film's now iconic ending. I, I don't want to go into the ending specifically. No spoiler alerts here on Behind the Scenes, but... They'd actually shot four alternate finales, but in the end, they went with the original. Good. And the end result was this highly unconventional, very daring film, very scary film. Yeah, unsettling. But to really catapult this film into the stratosphere, the filmmakers and the studio, they needed to come up with a pioneering marketing campaign. The horror hit's official website is scaring up big business. And today's Hollywood trade paper, Daily Variety, a full-page ad boast of over 50 million hits to date. This film actually paved the way. If you think about it, 1999, yeah. it paved the way for viral marketing. It's also seen as the first mainstream film to fully harness online marketing. I mean, the internet, probably four or five years into the real emergence of the internet as a force, everything hinged on basically sowing the seeds that these events of the film actually happened. And so did a great job doing it. This news story is from 1994, but was it fabricated? The search of the three missing Montgomery College students continues in Frederick County tonight. Yeah, I mean, pe people Foreboding. were totally taken in by it. The project's website was crucial to its success. The filmmakers used it to kind of expand on the folklore of the That's Blair right. Witch, to engage with fans. They had newsreel-style interviews, and they even had fake police reports. My older brother, when I was little, used to scare me to death with the stories of the Blair Witch. Really, the website was kind of like a medium for the mythology, so we all created the mythology and threw it up there for people to find out about. Ed formatted the site in such a way to where it was kind of an interactive experience. You know, the more you think about this, it's utterly genius. It is genius, because it gets even better. 
couple of other publicity stunts thrown into the mix, listing the actors on IMDb as missing, presumed dead. Wow. Okay. Um, they distributed pamphlets before the film festival asking people to come forward if they had any information about the cast whereabouts. The cast, this is really rough on the cast, they were discouraged from taking additional movie and film roles up to the movie's release to keep the illusion going. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, they must have made a ton of royalties after this movie made so much money, $250 million at the box office. They were paid $1,000 a day. Well, it's a sorry tale, Chris, I have to say, because in 2016, Heather Donahue, who was basically the lead actress in this, she wrote an op-ed for The Guardian, opening up about her experiences and going dark for The Blair Witch Project. And she just didn't get the fair share of the earnings that the film made. She actually wrote, this is amazing, this little paragraph here. She said, being dead and alive at the same time has its advantages. I watched a significant time in my life unfurl without me. Uh, on a brutally hot July day, a 1984 Toyota Celica I brought with my temping pay when I moved to LA overheated, only this time it happened under a billboard with my face on it. I sat there under my enormous face, waiting for the car to cool down, thinking, surely this will work. When I arrived home that day, I did an interview that I'd surreptitiously arranged with my hometown paper, the Philadelphia Inquiry, and shared the story laughing, I'm the poorest new famous person in America. Yeah. Um, the, the, the cast were paid $1,000 per day for the eight-day shoot. And that's it. The film made $250 million. The cast were paid, between them, $8,000 each. Um, when Donahue's interview in the Philadelphia Inquirer went live, the marketing department for the film actually told her off. They didn't like said that. you shouldn't have spoken to them. You shouldn't have spoken to the press. And um, she was like, are you going to send me money? Um, at the end of the day... She was 24 years old. She was new. She was trying to break into acting. She apologized to them. Um, she, uh, she, she basically just kind of swallowed her pride and just went, okay, you're right. The film leveled off in sales. There was soon an incentive for the actors to finally come forward and reveal that they were, in fact, alive. But it was a daunting task to pull back the wool from the mystery that they'd created because they'd sown such a very effective seed there. Um, and yeah, pe right. people like to buy into this mytho this kind of Idea backstory that, yeah. to the horror. So there were people that were just like, you know, they were willing to completely buy into it. So it was very difficult for them to untell that story. Um, and, you know, they were involved in a very unconventional project. Donahue was saying that having her image represent the film is something that she's still wrestling with to this day. She's grateful um, that the more... Opportunity, yeah. Yeah, that more kind of found footage films came in the wake of this, that it sort of changed the, the genre in many ways. Um, but she said that it was very unprofessional the way it was all put together. And, you know, the cast were, you know, they came out of it. It was obviously a very harrowing thing for them to be involved with as well. No doubt. And, and listening to you tell this story, and actually kind of another reason why they didn't go for well-known actors, because in a lot of ways they were able to cajole, they were able to kind of almost like a sheepdog yeah penning you know penning the the sheep they were able to actually control these actors a lot more than say you would if they were established with uh, you know they said it in their job ad didn't they, they didn't well that's it and she, she said it she said you couldn't have made Blair Witch with well-known actors SAG actors there was no meal penalty or meal breaks we were shooting 24-7 without meal breaks yeah, nobody exactly. directing us she said that poses a challenge to a lot of current found footage films you'll just never quite capture the wildness of what the internet was yeah. then um, and then onto the release of the film, it premiered at only 40 colleges around the US and it soon took off. The film is the Blair Witch Project. Critics have called it one of the 
scariest films of all time. I was terrified. Oh, it, it scared me to death. Yeah, it I mean, really it, it's got an amazing legacy. It started a franchise. It shifted an entire genre. And it introduced techniques into cinema that transcended its humble budget. Yeah, not wrong. Not wrong at all. The ending, oh, it does get under the skin, it's fair to say. The Blair Witch Project, 25 years old this month. Quite remarkable. Great job, Rob. The Offscript Podcast. The world's five richest people have more than doubled their collective wealth. What about this? To 869 billion... That's up from 405 billion since 2020. Quiz question for you. Could you name the five richest people on the planet? Well, two of them I can. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. That is one and two. Then there's that Arno guy. (laughs) Bernard Bernard Arno. That's it. He's He's a sort of forgotten forgotten member of the trio. (laughs) Doesn't receive anywhere near as many column inches or (laughs) as much publicity, but he's sneaky rich. How has he become so rich and yet so comparatively low profile? So uh, you're absolutely right. I need to Google Bernard Arno and see what he, Bernard Arnault, and see exactly what he made his money. But yes, that's three. Who else you got from does, it? Uh, does Zuckerberg crack the top he five? He does. He is in at number five, which means you're missing number four. Warren Warren Buffett? No, no, no. The Buffet other, or buff, Buffett? Buffett. <laughs> it's not Warren Buffett. <laughs> Warren or you can eat Buffet. <laughs> no, it's not him. It's I always want to say Buffet. It's the fellow that, it's fair to say, COVID has, uh, has led it's him to get... feathered his nest, Bill yeah. Gates. Correct. Bill Gates in at number mm. four, 149 billion. Some of these That's outrageous, stats, that, isn't it? This is, uh, it's, it's rather sobering, and all jokes aside, at the current rate with which we're going at, Rob, it would take 230 years to end poverty. But the world could have, and this is just, it's horrible, it could have its first trillionaire within the next decade. Why? Well, I'm amazed it's going to take 10 years. 10 years. The number of billionaires has risen by 7% globally. That was last year from 2,544. That was from 2,376. And this is the start. I mean, all these stats are quite nauseating, but this, listen to this. The world's richest 1% own 43% of all global financial assets. That's according to this Oxfam report. Richest 1% own 43%. That is amazing. It's just absolutely mental. Uh, Sonal, if she was listening, she'd be up in arms over this. Globally, men own... Can I just say, by the way, I want to jump in here. You know, the the first trillionaire in 10 years... Who's it going to be? Who's it projected to be? Well, I don't don't know. Ah. Um, No, no, what I'm saying is um, Italy's GDP is two trillion. Yeah. (laughs) It's obscene. It's obscene. Canada's GDP is 2.1 trillion. So just under a half of Canada's... One, one fella, and let's yeah. be honest, it's going to be a fella, yeah. is going to be worth half an Italy. <laughs> half an Italy. Is it the north or the south? Does he take <laughs> Turin or does he take Naples? I wonder. What about this? He could become, he could become the new Ineos, part owner yeah, of Italy. It. Yeah, he's bought a 36% stake in Italy. <laughs> get that fella by my He's looking club. to really rejuvenate the Colosseum. He's going to do a lot with Rome. He will do a lot with Rome. <laughs> I mean, he owns it. But he's not that interested in down south, nope. in Sicily. Naples and Sicily, he's got no interest in. What about this? And if Sona was listening to this, and, and you know, you as a father of two girls, me as a father of two girls as well, globally... Mm. Men own 105 trillion more wealth than women. 
the difference, the disparity in that wealth is equivalent to more than four times the size of the US economy. Does that shock you? Well, it doesn't shock me, um, but it is shocking, if that makes sense. Sobering. And, I mean, this one as well. I mean, all of these stats, they're designed to shock us. It would take 1,200 years for a female worker in the health and social sector to earn what a chief executive in the biggest Fortune 100 companies earns, on average, in one year. Wow. I mean... We've got it all wrong, haven't we? Well, that's it. I mean, Elon and Jeff, they're not complaining, are they, I guess? But, I mean, cheapers. Let's, let's see some of that wealth spread. Do we have uh, an exact reason as to how and why the, uh, the, the collective wealth has over doubled of the top five no, richest guys? I mean, they've just been prudent, I well, guess, right? They've been fair. I mean, that's. I think prudence is. bleeding obvious. But since 2020, right? So we're going back to. They've stashed a lot away for a rainy day. Well, yeah. In the case, I mean, cheapers, every man and their dog seem to be on Amazon these days ordering stuff. I think the pandemic. But you say 2020. That, that is, of course, the year the pandemic it started. Broke. Yep. So they've, they have, the pandemic, let's be honest, has been great for their bank accounts. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about this as well? In each of the planet's uh, five wealthiest men were to spend. So if each of them were to spend $1 million daily, it would take 476 years to exhaust their combined wealth. Spending a million daily. I wonder what, uh, do you think they are? Uh, do you think they are kind of rattling through that kind of ex expenditure? Well, I mean, uh, money's not... If you're Jeff Bezos and you're as on I've holiday... Always said, I've always said it. Uh, yeah, I would love to see those five blokes current account. Who do they bank with? Is it, uh, is it an HSBC? West. <laughs> you know, is that NatWest? No. And what is in their current account? They um, own banks, Chris. They don't bank with people. But, um, they own the banks. They just, you know, money's no object. Like Jeff, just, I mean, he just spends, he never thinks about it. doesn't need to. But then I bet you, right, I bet if Jeff, I bet he's perusing menus to see... You know, no chance. I, yeah, honestly, no chance, Rob. Because the the richest people are often the tightest individuals. These guys will definitely be watching what watching what they spend. No chance. They will. Have you seen Bezos's <laughs> missus? Lauren Sanchez ain't letting him have a little look at the price <laughs> on menus. There's absolutely. I guarantee you, he's spending a lot on his personal trainer. <laughs> I bet he is. He looks a million pesetas, as we've said many, many times. The Offscript Podcast. <laughs> How they made it on Offscript, charting the life journeys of the most successful people on the planet. <laughs> now, uh, we actually started this feature a few months back with a piece on uh, the man you can hear laughing in yes. that clip, Indeed the one and only did. Jeff Bezos. Yep. We felt he was an apt figurehead for the How They Made It feature. Yep. Now, <laughs> I've always wondered to myself, you know, we talk about Musk, we talk about Zuckerberg, we talk about Bezos. The poor bloke that never gets any attention, Bernard Arnault, yeah. who is just as rich, just as ludicrously wealthy as the three aforementioned individuals. He just doesn't get the column inches. He doesn't get the press. He doesn't get the media. He's put all the work in, gets none of the credit. So we're going to give him, we're going to shed some light. Going to give him five minutes. Bernard Arnault. We're going to give him the off-script treatment. Indeed. So nowadays, as well as being kind of the... One of the three richest men in the world, because it changes quite a lot, doesn't it? With a hundred eighty-two billion US dollars as of yesterday, according to Forbes, it's tough he, to catch that up. Isn't I mean, it? it's hard. We, you know, we've got a. We're a we, he's got a massive um, head start. <laughs> a, on us there, a huge Rob. lead. <laughs> <laughs> um, he is the founder, chairman, and CEO of L. 
LVMH or the Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton, uh, the world's largest luxury group encompassing 70 renowned style and cosmetics brands like Louis Vuitton, as you might have guessed, Christian Dior, recently Tiffany & Co, Moet and Chandon, as you might have guessed from the name, and McCarty's favourite, the um, fantastic makeup brand Sephora. Oh, yeah? Chris it's McCarty's one of his, favorite. is it? Yeah, it's one okay. of his. Um, <laughs> Could often find Chris in there on a, on a weekend, just perusing the shelves. Indeed. Now, we dubbed him the um, bashful billionaire. As we'll find out, he's not as bashful as he might oh, come across. Of course across. he's not. Um, but he is uh, the definition of start small, set yourself a goal and surprise yourself. Um, quite an amazing journey he has. Is he self-made, is he? Uh, well, yes, self-made, yeah. He joined his father's company as a builder, but the, that's not what made him his money. Right. He ended up... Um, yeah, generally, people who inherit large amounts of wealth don't start start out as builders, generally exactly. speaking. No, exactly. He became a CEO of said engineering firm, and from there he went on to acquire um, kind of a holding company, which we'll come to. Born in 1949, he's actually a classical pianist trained, uh, but he decided wow. he wasn't good enough to make a career out of it. Loves piano music, classical composers as well. His second wife, Hélène Mercier, is a world-renowned concert pianist, so wow. very dear to his heart. Do we have a count on how many wives he's... Uh, he's had over the years? Actually, no. That was the only wife that came up in my research okay. today. So I'm assuming they're still together, but who knows? Right. Maybe they are, who knows? So at the moment, he is, of course, head of um, Louis Vuitton and Moe Chandon and, uh, you know, about 70 luxury brands. As I mentioned earlier, he started off working for his dad's engineering firm, construction company, Ferry Savinel. He was its president from 78 to 84. So it took him seven years to rise to the top. And then he stayed there for six years. And then he bought a nearly bankrupt company called Agash Willow Boussac, a fashion retail and manufacturer. And the investment was his passageway to the luxury business world, away from engineering into luxury. He actually laid off 9,000 workers oh, in the first two years. Absolutely ruthless, so not as bashful as no, we initially thought. No. He sold nearly all of the assets, but he kept two things which were vital. Christian Dior and right. Le Bon Marche, which were kind of owned by Agash Willow Bosac. Um, here he is talking about why he prioritised keeping the Christian Dior brand. The first time I was in New York, it's in uh, 71. <laughs> I took a cab and I started to talk to the cab driver and he loved France and he was interested in politics. So I asked him, you love France, so what do you know in France? Do you know the French president? He said, no, I don't know the French president, but I know Christian Dior. So as far back as 71, I understood the power of, of a name. For a billionaire, he really needs to work on his acoustics, Rog. That <laughs> was banging and clattering in the background there. This was a lecture. Yeah, this, it, it, it was a really... In, I've, I've, I watched the lecture that he did today and it was really eye-opening, although the acoustics were not, not ideal. Right. Um, so that was 1971 when he's in that cab in New York. He didn't buy the company that owned Christian Dior until 1984, so he had it in his sights for all that time. It was, as I said, 
almost bankrupt, really struggling. It was the one asset that he kept, as well as a Le Bon Marche department store. And by 1987, he made Christian Dior profitable again. Wow. So he worked hard. In 1999, he became the richest person in fashion. Um, and uh, then some smart investments and smart acquisitions have made him since the, one of the richest men in the world. A man with that much money and that many luxury brands seems to have a difficult relationship with the word luxury. I don't like very much the word luxury because you have something attached to it which means show off, which means something of non-significance, something futile, something that is useless. And I think a better definition is combination of quality and creativity. It's how I define what we do. Oh, so he's taking umbrage at, you know, just trinkets. Yeah. Luxury. luxury. It's it's almost superficial, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of shallow. Exactly. And he doesn't like that as as a sort of moniker for his brands. He likes the creativity and the quality. And actually, he is a huge, he spends his money on artworks, Picasso, uh, Klein, Moore and Warhol. He has he has some of the, some of the most sought after artwork. Art, well, he has artwork from some of the most sought after artists as well. So that's where he spends his money, not necessarily on the luxury goods that he right pervades. Right. Um, so unlike Bezos, Musk, and the Chris McCardys of the world, not of many course. people are aware that he's one of the richest people in the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, certainly wasn't aware that Chris was in that conversation, <laughs> but that is news to me. But it, he may tr- well be. He may well be. He, you could walk past Bernard Arnault, I believe. And you wouldn't, you and I wouldn't notice. Him. I don't Some think would. if I googled him now, I, I would. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd know what he even looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas Bezos, Musk, you could. You could even sketch Bezos. It looks a bit like me, just an, an egg with uh, some features. But, but do you know what I mean? He's yeah. not got a dis- distinctive personal persona, personal image, but he uses that relative anonymity to his advantage. Every Saturday, Bernard Arnault, a regular fixture in the world richest lists, visits as many as 25 stores including his and his competitors. He offers suggestions to his staff, rearranges products on the displays and takes note on what his enemies are doing. Imagine Musk or Bezos trying to do that. Not a chance. They would be mobbed in the streets. They would. I find that fascinating. Speaking of his enemies, uh, he had a bit of a war with Gucci. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) What is this? The five families. This is the five families. Hey, Gucci, Um, you got to go, you know. (laughs) Gucci. Um, So I know... He started buying shares in Gucci in 1995. At one point, he held 35%. We should really get the business breakfast on this, but I'll give it a go. 35% stake in Gucci. Dazzle me with your economics. (laughs) The Gucci group weren't happy with that, and they enlisted another leading French businessman, Francois Pinot, to thwart LMVH's plans to take over Gucci. LMVH is obviously the company that Bernard Arnault has. So eventually... Arno lost that battle with Pino uh, after almost three years. Speaking about it later, Arno reportedly hinting at the fact that it surprised him. He thought Pino was a friend and he should have maybe been a bit more on guard okay. when he realised what was going on uh, and slow to react. He's a blinkered billionaire. 
blinkered billionaire. Rob, keep those coming. Since that affair, um, it's been nothing but shots fired, and the war of Gucci has sparked Arnaud's long-standing and expensive rivalry with uh, Francois Pinot. Arnaud once told Time magazine that his efforts... Con- I'm not going to do it. I nearly <laughs> started did it. I nearly his got in a lot of trouble consist there. of trying to imitate what we have done with uh, LVMH on a smaller scale. It is always flattering to be imitated. Nice. It sounds evil. It sounds evil in a French voice there. Mm. Flattering that wasn't to be a imitated. very good French accent, but um, we do our best. Now, there is, uh, he, he kind of shirks away from marketing, um, and it's quite interesting how he takes, well, his companies take an anti marketing approach. Marketing is against what a company like us should do. Marketing is to analyze what the customer wants and then try to follow what the customer is looking for. We do completely differently. We create new products and when it's successful, the customers follow. So the marketing is not for us part of the product creation. Right, they're not the sheep. Yes. They're the leaders. They're the leaders. They're the shepherds, not the sheep. The shepherds, not the sheep, and they create desire. I really like that. Um, It kind of makes sense. Um, uh, it's funny that because I, I guarantee you I've seen plenty of Christian Dior ads in my time. So <laughs> well, no, no, I, yeah, I'm going to call. I think his point was he's not against using advertising or marketing, but they won't do market research. They won't go out into that. They won't do that side of it. They won't right. try and find what will be popular. They'll try and find what people will desire. I think that's kind of okay. what he was trying to Fair say. Fair enough. Um, so, hey, listen, he's worth 189 billion. He's it, done something right. Who are we to argue? Uh, 74 years old, still really active, loves startups, loves investing in them and developing them. And he even talks about his experience with Christian Dior and Louis Vuitton as being the original startups. Um, he's so active that the story goes that he's yet to consider a successor amongst his 75 children. Uh, 75? 75? S- amongst his five busy. children. Sorry. Amongst his five children <laughs> at 74 years old. That's a dangerous game to it's play. It's the thing. He's so rich, he could have 75 kids and still <laughs> leave. They'd all be billionaires. <laughs> in the inheritance. What a great point. Ah, man. Um, it, but yeah, so obviously his five kids all work in his empire. So Frederic is the CEO of Tagur. Delphine is the executive vice president of Louis Vuitton. Antoine, CEO of Christian Dior. Alexandra, executive vice president at uh, Tiffany & Co. Quite, quite remarkable. Um, and uh, what keeps him young, he says what keeps him young. I quite like this. It's a 15-second clip that just sums up the mentality of somebody at 74 years old who is still pushing, still trying to make it. Um, I like this. I'm never bored. It's what I have in mind. When I think of myself young, it, it's fun. Yeah. And I am very competitive. So it's like in tennis. I always want to win. Yeah. And that's fun. <laughs> I don't think I'd beat him at tennis. I, no, he'd wipe the floor with me. <laughs> from judging by that, yep. Very competitive. So, unfortunately for his yet-to-be-determined heir, he's probably not going anywhere soon. Um, but just imagine those, those oh, succession-esque yeah, power plays. It could plays. be succession, the oh, French edition. Yes. That, do you know what? That's, that's, that's amazing. That's they'll be hanging pitch. out in... Rob, you need to pitch that to somebody because that's brilliant. That could, we could, couldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Because they did it on Rupert Murdoch, didn't they? Yeah, um, essentially, yeah. Loosely yeah. based. Yeah. Succession, the TV show that is, with Brian, yes. our good mate Brian Cox. Yeah. They could do one on Bernard, Bernard Arnault. Yeah. 
French set language. Set in France, set in the chateau. Yeah, subtitles, which makes it more classy. Yeah. <laughs> People will watch it because <laughs> it's got I subtitles. don't think it'll be that classy, Rog. <laughs> If, if succession is anything to go by, it will it not will be classy. It will be the opposite of classy, that's true. But yeah, oh, wow. there you go. One of the world's richest men. You know hopefully a little bit more about that's him than you That's really, did really on. fascinating. I, you know what? I had no clue about him Me and I, I feel like I've been educated to some extent. Um, so thank you for that, Rog. No Appreciate that. Bernard Arno, the bashful billionaire, <laughs> still going strong at 74 years of age. The Off Script Podcast. Figures of Speech. On off script. We choose to go to the moon. All men are created in How dare you? I regard myself as a soldier, though a soldier of peace. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. I mean, that's a brilliant sleeper, Rog, but I've run out of time to actually deliver the feature because <laughs> <laughs> it's about 29 seconds long. I got the ball and <laughs> ran with it, Rob. <laughs> yeah, how do you, honestly, you only spent about five minutes <laughs> rustling that thing up. Uh, it was, That's it's quite a talent. It had been cooking since last week. I knew which ones I wanted. I just had to find them. Oh, there you go. Wow. I mean, that would have taken me nine days <laughs> to produce that. That's a work of art, Rog. I feel like you've kind of stole my thunder there. <laughs> no um, way. Anyway, listen, this is a, a new feature. If you missed last week's edition, we actually did I Have a Dream by Martin Luther King. We went in at the top shelf. Of course. We went to the maybe the goat of all speeches, yeah. 1963. But basically, we're trying to deconstruct famous speeches. Yeah, I love and, this. Um, we're going to keep running with this until we run out of really good ones let's be honest that's going to be a long time away uh so for the second episode i've gone really obscure yep we've gone from like top shelf most famous speech of all time martin luther king to someone who's much lesser known however i would argue no less wise Ooh. a philosopher by the name of alan watts okay. you heard of him he's new to me rob he was new to me essentially as well he was born in kent during world war one okay in 1915 and he passed away in California in 1973 at the age of 58. So we're going to kind of zoom in on one of his famous speeches and we're going to like unpick a little bit about his life as well. Um, and I have to say, he is a real poet and, oh, and he makes some incredible, you know, real wisdom in his words. We'll get into that and I want to get your thoughts on it because I've, sp- I've specifically chosen a speech that he made that I think will resonate with you. Oh, wonderful. And can I ask how... You came across him then? You hadn't heard of him until recently? I was just uh, looking at kind of... I was trying to go down the more philosophical route yeah. for this rather than the kind of presidential or po- political speech route. Which, I mean, we're going to we'll cover some of those. numerous different pillars. We're yeah. going to go to sports people as well. And, yeah. you Rocky know, at the States, end of men and women. Four. Yeah, exactly. Maybe even film characters. <laughs> but I wanted to get philosophical. I've been uh, itching just, to get philosophical this have. show for quite some time. I think since I started on this Cri- show, you've mentioned that you'd like to yes, do a philosophical I, I wanted to introduce off-script philosophy. It never caught it on never for some did. reason. Um, everyone just kind of just poo-pooed it and, you know, <laughs> brushed it under the carpet. And anyway, uh, basically, Alan Watts is, is my ticket to, to talking about all things he's, philosophy. You're way in. That's right. So he was one of the first, actually, to interpret Eastern wisdom for mm. a Western audience, okay? So he was born outside London, as I say, 1915. He discovered uh, a nearby Buddhist lodge at a young age. He moved to the US in 1938 he became an Episcopal priest. He relocated to New York. He wrote his book, a pivotal book, The Wisdom of Insecurity, A Message for an Age of Anxiety. He wrote that in 1951. Right. Imagine what he would make of today's anxiety levels if he thought that 1951 was the an age, age of anxiety. Of man. I mean, I wasn't around in 1951, but I would imagine 2024 dwarfs yeah. 
1951 when it comes to general levels of anxiety. It's a sweeping statement, but I assume 1951 was an easier life back then. Or a, maybe just a more, I don't know, a less fraught existence. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, we might be wrong. I could be wrong, but uh, you know, I just think that I think the, the age of technology has definitely yeah. heightened it's our collective anxiety. Agreed. Anyway, the wisdom of insecurity underlines the importance of our search for stability in an age where human life seems particularly vulnerable and uncertain. This was back in the 1950s, of course. Now, Watts argues our insecurity is the consequence of trying to be secure. And that, mm. ironically, salvation and sanity lie in the recognition that we have no way of saving ourselves. The wise fool. Yeah. 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 I, like I like that, that right? That a lot. Now, he moved to the US in the same year. He gravitated towards a career, guess what, in radio, Rog. He's now, it's fair to say... The quality of radio broadcasters, if Alan Watts was the level, if he was the bar in the 1950s, it's gone severely downhill if the likes of us can get on air 75 years later, Rog. Uh, no comment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble. Can only agree, right? Yeah. He launched a popular radio show in San Francisco. He did go off script. Love it. But his show was far more ambitious than off script. It was far bolder. It was called Way Beyond the West. Yeah, that's that's got gravitas. You know, it's got gravitas, yeah, hasn't it? Imagine that's... if we'd called ourselves Way Beyond the West. <laughs> you know? We could not back that up. We, we, we couldn't. We'd <laughs> no. be flailing. Every single day we would we would just be falling well We've set short the bar of expectations. Too high with the title. <laughs> Whereas off script allows us to be inane and banal. Exactly. Um, anyway, by the early nineteen sixties, Alan's radio talks were airing nationally. The counterculture movement adopted him as a spiritual spokesperson. He wrote and travelled regularly until he passed away in nineteen seventy three. And the LA Times actually wrote of him. Perhaps the foremost interpreter of Eastern disciplines for the contemporary West, Alan Watts had the rare gift of writing beautifully the unwritable. Um, Watts begins with scholarship and intellect and proceeds with art and eloquence to the frontiers of the spirit, a fascinating entry into the deepest ways of knowing. Now, as I said, there are many speeches of Alan's that we could have turned to, ones that he would give to his radio audience time and again, ones that he gave in public as well on roadshows throughout the US when he was touring, many of which actually have found sanctuary on YouTube. You can find them on YouTube. A lot oh, of them great. are set to inspirational music. I find them very inspiring. Love it. Ravi's been in touch to say, hello, Robbie. I can't imagine one day of Chris's absence has changed you so much to a philosopher. <laughs> He's been waiting for this. Ravi. I've been waiting in the wings for Chris to have <laughs> nanny problems and for me with the statement we made about the age of anxiety. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about Alan philosophical musings. Andy has pointed out that in 1951, the world was still in the shadow of Hiroshima and Nagasaki a nuclear arms race between the USSR and NATO. Quite an anxious moment compared to how many followers you have on Insta, says Andy. I'm not taking issue with that, no. of course. I'm not taking issue with any of that. I do think that the culture of anxiety has grown yeah. in, in, this, uh, in, in this particular area that we're living in, where we have more than we've ever had. Life is better for yeah. more people than it's ever been before. But, you know, s cases of mental health issues and, and stress and anxiety and, you know, no one was getting prescribed you know, yeah, exactly. uh, antidepressant drugs back in the 1950s, yeah. to, my, to the best that, of my that, knowledge. That, that now, know I'm not saying now. they didn't need them. Yeah. I'm just saying that there's just way more of a focus on yeah. how, how anxious people are. And I don't think that's maybe not necessarily a reflection on what people are going through at the time or what the world is going through at the time, but more the sort of state of the culture. Yeah. 
Well, I would say. But but no, I mean again, that, that's a very narrow viewpoint, perhaps, on for debate. But uh, certainly, and, certainly take your point, Andy. Andy did also say in a separate message, "Can you please do Kevin Keegan's? I would love it." Speech from the Fergie era, hundred percent. So he's brought I've into put this that straight on the back burner. <laughs> the I would love it. One of the most ill-fated speeches of all time oh, from Kevin death. Keegan. We're going to go from Martin Luther King <laughs> to Alan Watts to Kevin, to Kevin Keegan, Keegan next week <laughs> on a figure of speech on off script. Right. Um, <laughs> let's get back into this. Alan Watts. OK, now we're going to zoom in on one particular speech he did. It's called Life is a Journey. Now, in what way, Roger, I'm going to put you on the spot here. OK. In what way do you reckon Alan might compare life to music? To music? Yeah. Oh, to a to the creative process of music, maybe. Not a bad effort. Okay, G- but, but you're not wrong. Right. Yeah, you're not right. No, you're to, wrong. To how do you compare life to? I'm not. I'm. I'm not even going to guess. Okay, right? it's not a bad guess. Okay, it's not a bad guess. But here is the man himself. Here's Alan Watts on how life and music are mirror images of one another. Because music, as an art form, is essentially playful. We say you play the piano. You don't work the piano. In music, though, one doesn't make the end of a composition the point of the, comp- of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played fastest. <laughs> and there would be composers who wrote only finales. <laughs> People go to concert just to hear one crashing chord, because that's the end. <laughs> Same way in dancing. You don't aim at a particular spot in the room. That's where you should arrive. The whole point of the dancing is the dance. Now, I have to admit, I'm such a bad dancer that I did aim at particular spots. <laughs> when, I, when doing my wedding dance, there were several spots in the room that I was aiming at. I saw that dance. I can vouch for that. I saw your eyes locked on certain locations around the room. But I get his point. What do you think he's driving at there, Rog? It's really nice. Let's, let's unpick this. You I, must, want, I want you to analyse this. You must enjoy the journey. You must uh, take each rise and fall as it comes with you, I think it's great. I, and it's I, not all about leading to That's it. You see, he act. makes the claim. And again, we've got to think about the historical context of this. He's talking in 1951 here. Right. Or probably, no, this is probably a little bit, this is later on into the 1950s. What he goes on to say is that we structure our life entirely at odds with how we're supposed to be living. Listen to this. We've got a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know, and that's a great thing because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then come on, first grade leads to second grade and so on, and then you get out of grade school, and you've got high school, and it's revving up, the thing is coming, then you're going to go to college, and by Jove, then you get into graduate school, and when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket, and they've got that quota to make. And you're going to make that. And all the time, the thing is coming. It's coming, it's coming, that great thing, the, the success you're working for. Then when you wake up one day about 40 years old, you say, my God, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you always felt. And there's a slight letdown because you feel there's a hoax. And there was a hoax. A dreadful hoax. They made you miss everything. Because we simply cheated ourselves the whole way down the line. Now, when you hit 40, Rog, did you wake up one morning and go, I made it? I mean, we're both on the wrong side of 40. We are both on the wrong side of 40. No, I certainly didn't. 
I just, I'm still reaching. I'm still. I'm lucky. I think in in, in Alan's system, I'm lucky that I'm a very late bloomer. So I'm uh, not quite. <laughs> well, yeah. When, when I say very late, I, I might, you know, it might take me another 25, 30 years <laughs> to reach that conclusion. Hope so. Hope so. But that's fascinating, isn't it? Constantly, you're never, never focusing on the what's happening in the moment because you're constantly thinking first grade, second grade achievements, <laughs> work, get the house. Oh, man. He's nailing it. Here's where he sort of ties it all back together. This is the kind of crescendo of the speech. You know, uh, this is how life is musical in nature, according to Alan. We thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end. And the thing was to get to that end. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. This is, as I said, my basic metaphysical assumption, which I won't conceal from you, that existence is musical in nature. That is to say that it is not serious. It is the play of all kinds of patterns. Now, we do fixate on outcomes. And like, you know, we're doing the Hero Dubai Desert Classic this week. And, you know, all the journalists will get in that, into that press conference and they'll, they'll talk about goals for the year. Yeah. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? Yeah. Uh, it'll all be about stuff that is hap- either happened in the past or is going to happen in the future. Yeah. And we're not really engaged in the kind of... The, the brilliant tournament at the moment on that weekend. Well, yeah. Or at least that's not what the, the narrative is, is really yeah. stipulated towards or kind of fixated on. It's more about, uh, do you think if you're able to do X, Y, and Z, you'll be able to win the tournament? And yes. Then, you know, and then a lot, of the, a lot of pros, because they all have sports psychologists, they'll come around and they'll talk about the journey yeah. being the crucial part of this all, you know, getting invested in the here and now, the day-to-day, yeah. just immersing oneself in, in the, the process of... In this case, getting better at golf and hopefully leading to better results. Yeah. Whereas I think just the, the, the way that we, te- we like to kind of frame things in a narrative point of view or a, a sort of a, a kind of snapshot, we like to focus on, on kind of outcomes. Outcomes, grasping, projections and reaching, what's next. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's a golfer. I'm sure Rory McIlroy say of a retired golfer, the best advice he ever got was smell the trees when you're going around. Smell the trees. I love that. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's a. I know a lot of Rory McIlroy quotes. I'm, I'm sure he said it, and I'm going to say Jack Nicholas, but it might not have been. I'm sure he said the best advice I got from him was just smell the trees when you're going around that Masters course, Augusta. Just smell the trees, enjoy it, breathe it in. Wow, it's nice. That. That's great. Yeah, I like how you've looped this back to golf, Rog. <laughs> it's the only time it'll ever. Yeah, happen, wow. That's, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> Sunil says I think the hippie movement tried to break away from the structure. That didn't work. This seems to be the best option we have. Yeah, I'm with so that's uh, it's, it's it's fair. It's a fair point. Uh, Alan, indeed, he ended up living out in San Francisco on the on the West Coast. Um, he ended up being uh, he, he was giving speeches and doing radio shows and doing book tours and that kind of thing. And he actually became an important figure in the counterculture movement, which was springing up in the 1960s in the Bay Area, and uh, it, it led to him. Uh, by the late 60s, living on a ferry boat in a place called Sausalito in a waterfront community of kind of artists and cultural renegades. Um, In fact, his boat became so popular that by towards the end of his life, he was drawn to a more solitary existence and he actually escaped to a mountain hideaway where he wrote quite a few journals, the last books that he he would write before he passed away. Fascinating. So, uh, yeah, really interesting guy. 
The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 